A number of years ago, we had a day camp here at Metropolitan Baptist Church, and sometimes I would serve as the recreation director uh, for the camp. The kids loved that. They would, they would challenge me in a variety of ways because here I was, I was the adult, and uh, we had this great fun together. Generally, before beginning the recreation, I would teach them some kind of a life lesson from the scripture. So this one day in recreation, I planned a tug of war. And it was going to be me against all of those kids. And we're talking maybe 30 kids that were fifth grade to eighth grade. So we're talking a lot of kids, me on one side, them on the other side. And they were psyched because they knew they were going to drag me right across that lawn. Now, I had this long rope stretched out across the, the lawn and, and they all grabbed a hold and, and I took a hold of my end and they pulled and I went forward a step or two and then I set myself and they were going nowhere. And they were pulling and struggling, and I was sitting there like really pulling hard, and nothing was happening. You know why? Because I had tied my end of the rope to the fence behind me. You see, the lesson was about being anchored in Christ. Now, as we enter into our discussion on Romans 7, I feel a bit like I'm back at that tug of war tug of war against the whole of Christian teaching today with just a few stout theologians from the past that are holding on to my end of the rope as well. The vast majority of Reformed teachers and preachers, both historically and in the present, read Romans 7 as an inward struggle of the Apostle Paul and therefore as all Christians between a sin nature and their sanctified nature. That this struggle is going on. It's a very popular view. I doubt that many of you that are, are present today have really heard any other view than that because it is the popular view. My only hope then in these next several weeks as I share the different perspectives, the perspective that this is not about the Apostle Paul and it is not about a Christian's inward struggle against sin, but rather that it is about an individual who is under the law and trying to use the law as a means to justify themselves before God. My only hope is that I have my end of the rope tied to the mighty word of God. For I have great faith in the sanctifying power of the Holy Spirit that we saw in Romans 6 as we studied that passage. And I know of the powerful presence of the Holy Spirit that is going to be spoken of and as, as we are doing our memory work in Romans 8. That God's Spirit is powerfully at work in us to perform in us a life transformation. And so as a result, Romans 7 cannot be about a Christian. If it is about a Christian, then Paul's words in Romans 6 about what baptism means for us, that we died with Christ and we have been raised to this newness of life, must be a lie. But I'm getting ahead of myself. 
for these are the topics that we're going to cover in the next few weeks, both in Sunday school and in the sermons on chapter 7. But for now, I want you to consider with me the theme of these opening verses in Romans 7, verses 1 through 6, that the best news for the Christians are the words, till death do us part. Till death do us part. You know, those words are, are part of the wedding vows that unite a couple together. And in spite of their culture that has no fault divorce, those words have powerful meaning. Jesus proclaimed, what God has joined together, let not man put asunder. Marriage is to be until the death of one of the partners, according to God's law. And it is God's law given to Moses, to which Paul now turns his attention here in Romans 7. So I want you to notice this, this concern that he has with the legal law of God and the implications that come from the written code. You see, the law holds all people accountable to follow that law to the very finest letter. You know, throughout the book of Romans, most of the time that Paul speaks about the law, he is talking about the law that God gave to Moses on Mount Sinai. And that is implied in verse 1 when he says, Or do you not know, brothers, for I'm speaking to those who know the law. And what law is he talking about there? He is talking about the Mosaic law. Now, he isn't only talking to the Jews, though certainly they're included in that. But he is also concerned for the Gentiles because the Gentiles have become part of the church. But the only Bible that they have is the Old Testament. The study of the Mosaic law and how that works out through the prophets and through the poetic and historic books. The Bible that the church had and that they were being taught from was the Old Testament. James indicates that in, in Acts chapter 15 when they were discussing do the Gentiles have to become Jews in order to become Christians? And as James sends out the letter and, and prepares the, uh, the Gentiles for what they need to do and what they shouldn't do, he summarizes it all with this. He says, for from ancient generations, Moses has had, has had in every city those who proclaim for him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Now, the early church was designed as a synagogue. And so it's talking not just to the Jews, but to the Jews and the Gentiles as well. And without a proper interpretation of those Old Testament scriptures, the Roman church might become just another branch of Judaism requiring the following of the Mosaic laws with all of its commandments. Because of that danger, then, notice what Paul warns them about, that those who trust the law are bound by it. You see, Paul warns the Galatian church that those who trust in the law for a right relationship with God would be required to keep the whole law. All of it, every single one of those 600 plus commandments. And they'd have to keep them perfectly. He told them that keeping the whole law as God intended it, however, was impossible. 
In chapter 2 of Galatians, he, he's, he's talking to Peter. He says, we Jews haven't been able to keep that law. How much less the Gentiles? James wrote that even if a person kept the whole law, but they violated it in one area, they would be guilty of the whole thing. And then when we come to Romans 11 through chapter 11 through chapter 14, we see there that some in the church of Rome thought that they were more spiritual because they followed certain parts of the law. And that there were others who considered their Jewishness to give them an extra special bonus before God. However, throughout Romans so far, as we have seen in chapters 1, particularly chapter 1 through chapter 4, Paul has taught that true Christians, whether they're Jews or whether they're Gentiles, they are freed from the law. And to make that clear, he now comes to chapter 7. And he will expand it on into chapter 8. You are either bound by the law to keep every part of it, or you're free from the Mosaic law because you now have Christ's Spirit living in you. And that's why verse 1 begins with, the law is binding on a person as long as he lives. You see, dead people don't have to worry about laws, do they? Dead people don't worry about having tax laws. They don't worry about traffic laws. They don't worry about the laws that deal with opening up a church after a pandemic. And that's why so many people who are under the law find themselves dead in that law. But just in case you missed that point, Paul gives us an illustration starting in verse 2. He says, as a married woman, she is bound by law to her husband while he lives. Now, in our American culture, that illustration may not really have much of an impact because you have no fault divorce. So it doesn't matter whether you made vows or not. You can divorce your spouse whenever you want. And that's why so many contemporary vows leave out that phrase, till death do us part. But Paul is writing to those who know the law, and they want to take that law seriously. Under the law, the only real reason for divorce is adultery. And if anyone was caught in adultery, what happened? They were taken out and they were stoned. Uh, that's a whole different take on the phrase, till death do us part. But that was the seriousness with which marriage was taken under the law. In the book of Second Samuel, we read a story about Nabal and his wife Abigail. And Abigail is brought to, to David comes to David, who is a warlord at that time, and she describes her relationship with her husband. And these are the words that she uses. Let not my Lord regard this worthless fellow, Nabal, for as his name, so is he. Nabal is his name, and folly is with him. The word Nabal means folly. Yet Abigail was still bound 
to her husband, even though he was a fool. She was still bound to her husband to follow him. Why? Because the law said that she had to. Like her, Paul says, anyone who seeks to follow the law is bound to it until the day that they die. So notice what that means. That those who trust the law are burdened by it. It's only one thing that you need to, to know when it comes to the law, and that is you have to follow it. I, yes, you have to follow all the sacrifices and, and keep the religious feasts and, and pay the required tithes and do all the other ceremonial commands of the law. But even more troublesome, more difficult, were the moral laws and keeping them. Not that there was anything wrong with the moral laws, but they made a person more aware of the sin in their heart. The law becomes a, a magnifying glass, enlarging every sin in the soul. Uh, that's what the Apostle Paul implies in verse 5, when he says, For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions, aroused by the law, were at work in our members. Without the power of the Holy Spirit, every person, no matter how much they know of the law or how much they try to follow the law, they find themselves more and more aware of the sinfulness of their heart. Like a woman who, who, though married, falls in love with someone else and has an affair. The human heart knows the truth of God's law, but still flirts with sin and is therefore condemned. That's how Paul then illustrates this in verse 3, when he says, Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. What a tragic illustration. And yet so apropos. Uh, earlier this week, I happened to be flipping through radio stations, just trying to find something to listen to, and Dennis Prager happened to be on doing his talk show, and he was talking about some comedian who was in trouble for saying some lustful things about a 16-year-old girl. I have no idea what that was all about. However, Dennis Prager said something like this. He says, I don't know what all this uproar is about. That's how all men are if they see a girl in a bikini under a waterfall. Some guy texted him and said, not all men. And Dennis mocked him, basically saying, well, if you don't, then you're not a real man. You see, that's the thought pattern of the world without Christ. All are caught up in the passions and the lusts of the flesh without escape. Sin has become normal. It's become acceptable. And all the law does is point that out for us. It makes us understand our guilt more and more. But there's nothing we can do about it. As Dennis Prager said, well, that's how everyone is without Christ. You see, in the end, when a person who is bound to the law becomes burdened with the guilt from that law, notice that those who trust the law are then buried by it. Do you remember the way chapter 6 ended? For the wages of sin 
is what? Death. For the wages of sin is death. Sometimes we forget that when Paul wrote Romans, he didn't write it with chapters and verses. He wrote it as one letter just flowing straight on through. Which means that chapter 7 isn't really chapter 7. Chapter 7 is part of chapter 6. It just flows on. Chapter 6, chapter 7, chapter 8, one continuous flow. So when chapter 6 ends with the wages of sin is death, Paul intends us to flow right on into chapter 7. And in the same way, we read in verse 5 of chapter 7, for while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. You see, a few weeks ago, in our Romans 8 in Motion memory verse productions that we have been doing on our Facebook page, we had our kids in verse 16 of Romans chapter 8, they held up different kinds of bears to represent the word bears from that verse. Well, I wish I had those bears right now so that I could emphasize the word bear in verse 5. Bear fruit for death. When I read that verse, it makes me think of a TV show that was on back, I guess, in the 60s or so. It was called Gentle Ben. And Gentle Ben was a pet bear of a kid in Florida. And uh, Gentle Ben was a a bear, nice big uh, black bear, and he had this nose for food. He was always getting into trouble as he followed his nose to wherever there was food, whether it was honey or whether it was fish or whatever it was. Paul is saying that the law is like that smell of food for our fleshly passions. The law is pointing us to those things that then attract us to them, but in doing so, they bring death. We can't help ourselves without Christ. Even though we know that it's a trap, we still go for it. Gentle Ben would would almost get shot or he'd end up in a trap because of that nose for food. Well, that's what the flesh does, is it plunges us towards sin, even though we know that the wages of sin is death. And so I ask you, does your sinful nose draw you into that sin? Oh, maybe you've been in church. You've listened to sermons. You've you've sat in Sunday school. You've heard all about what is right and what is wrong. And while you try to live a good life, is it a burden to you? Will you come to Jesus today then and let him take that burden from you? Will you surrender your life to him and let him put to death that old life so that he can give you a new heart and a new way of looking at the world? Yes, the legal law that God gave to Moses. Yes, it points out for us the dangers of sin. But it also has bound the burden, bound the sinner to the burden of sin. It serves as a lure to arouse the sinful passions leading to a burial under sin without Christ. And that's why the best news for a Christian are those words, till death do us part.
This chapter closes in verse 24 with a great heart cry from the person who is trapped without hope under the law of sin and death. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? That terrible burden of guilt and shame lays heavy on the shoulders of those who know the law, who know they ought to keep that law, but they find themselves trapped by sin, enslaved by it in the flesh. Who will deliver me? Well, notice the living law of Christ that alone can bring that deliverance. Remember back in chapter 6, verse 17, when Paul broke out in that doxology, thanks be to God. Well, he ends this chapter in the same way. In verse 25, he gives a similar response. He says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. You know, in the Gentle Ben series that I talked about a few moments ago, each time that Ben got into that trouble by following his nose and going after that food, wherever it was, Mark, his human friend or Mark's father, had to get Ben out of that trouble. No matter how much a person knows about the law, without the living law of Jesus Christ, there is no help. There is no hope. There is no Mark or Mark's father. But... Christ has provided an escape. The whole of chapter 6 has shouted that truth to us, and it's echoed here in verse 4. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead. Paul often uses this image of, of marriage to reflect the relationship between Christ and his church. We read of it, of course, in Ephesians 5, a passage that's often read at weddings. And then there's a statement in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, where Paul says, For I feel a divine jealousy for you, since I betrothed you to one husband, to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. Well, that's what Paul is describing for us in verse 4 when he says that we died to the law so that we could belong to another. And that other is Jesus Christ, the one who is raised from the dead. So compare with me the difference between belonging to Jesus Christ and being underneath the law. And as we do that, notice how those who trust in Christ are freed by him. Remember how the law bound a person in the flesh to sin? We saw it in chapters 1, 2, and 3. Sin controlling completely everything. They couldn't escape until we come to Romans 3, verse 20 and following, when it says, yes, we were bound by sin, but Jesus Christ, but Jesus Christ, he came, and with him came the opportunity to put to death sin and to be raised up to a newness of life in Christ. By faith in him, the Christian has been freed to live for God's glory. The beauty of, of that thought radiates out in verse 6 of our text. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive. Do I hear an amen? 
Uh, let me read it again, just in case you missed it. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive. Now, there are those who claim that this passage in Romans 7 is about Christians and their struggle with sin. And I don't deny that Christians need to yield their members as servants to righteousness. We saw that back in in chapter 6. Or that the spirit and the flesh battle against one another as Galatians 5.16 expresses. But oh, my brothers and sisters in Christ, this idea that a person who is in Christ is still a slave to sin, is still bound by that sin, that flies in the face of what we've been reading in chapter 6 and now that we see in verse 3 of chapter 7. But if her husband dies, she is freed from the law. And if she marries another man, she's not an adulteress. The law has no more power over us to condemn us. Not just because Jesus paid it all, all to him we owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow, as the the songwriter put it. That's a glorious thought. But there is so much more beyond that. When the husband dies, that is, when the law's power is dead to us through Jesus Christ, we now belong to another. We are in Christ, and Christ is in us. He lives. He lives. Christ Jesus lives today. He walks with me. He talks with me along life's narrow way. He lives. He lives. Salvation to impart. You ask me how. I know he lives He lives within my heart. And because we know that Christ lives in us and we have been freed from the power of sin, notice that those who trust in Christ are fruitful by him. Fruitful. We are the full of the fruit of righteousness. You know, when Abigail's uh, husband, Nabal, that we talked about, when, when he died, she was then free from him. She was able to then remarry. And who did she remarry? She married David. She went from being the wife of a fool to the wife of the most powerful and most handsome individual in the whole Middle East. And that is nothing compared to what happens to us. Verse 4 pounds it into us with these fantastic words, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. Not fruit for death when we were underneath the law, but now fruit for for God, freed from the foolishness of sin, from his burdens and death, given as a bride to Jesus Christ, as Paul said, espoused to him, that we might live for the glory of God. And as we've been memorizing in Romans 8, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free from the law of sin and death. Why did Jesus die and rise again? Was it that you might go to heaven? Was it so that you could see your loved ones in eternity? Well, 
No and yes. Yes, we have this blessed promise that we will spend eternity with God because of Jesus Christ. And yes, he has gone to prepare a place for us so that where he is, there we may be also. And yes, there is a place where there is no sickness, there is no pandemic, there is no poverty, there is no death. Yes, to all of that, but also to more. That is not the ultimate reason that Jesus Christ died. He died that we might die to the condemnation of sin and the law and that we might live unto God. That we might stop bearing the fruit of sin and death and begin to bear the fruit of righteousness and obedience. We belong to Christ that we might bear fruit by him for God. And I ask you, what kind of fruit are you bearing? Is it the fruit of sin that leads to death? Or has the life of the living spirit begun his great work in you, producing in you that fruit of righteousness that brings life? Are you living as though you were still carnal, you were still caught up in the flesh, or have you been set free to live for the glory of God through our Savior, Jesus Christ? Do the things of this world still attract you more than the things of eternity? Have you been set free to live in the presence and the power of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, who by his power raises us up to serve our eternal God? Well, let me wind this up by pointing out that those who trust in Christ are also fulfilled by him. We've often heard that there's a God-shaped vacuum in every human being. Without Jesus Christ, your life lacks purpose. It lacks meaning. You know what is right and wrong. At least you have some ideas that the scripture says your conscience accuses and sometimes excuses you. But now, there is a day that's coming when you will have to give an account for how you've lived. And the question is, are you going to fall short on that day? My sister once worked for a bank here in New York City. And that was back in the days when the tellers actually had to give, at the end of the day, an accounting for every penny that they had had in the morning. And on this particular day, she came up $100 short. She's very concerned about that because if you come up short, it's taken out of your pay. And their pay wasn't that great back then. So $100 was a lot of money. And then she remembered that there was only one person that she had given multiple $100 bills to. And so she went and she looked up that person's account, found their address, went to that address, rang the guy's doorbell, and told him the story. Well, he hadn't yet opened up the envelope with the money, so he invited her in, and he opened up the envelope, counted out, and sure enough, there was an extra $100 bill in there. She was able to take it back to the bank, and her account tallied. But you know, that's not what we're talking about here. 
We're not talking about a $100 difference in our bank account. We're talking about a debt so huge, so large, that it only an eternity of suffering would pay for it. But there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. You see, through Jesus Christ's death, our debt is paid. If by faith we trust in Jesus Christ, our past is gone, washed away in his precious blood. And this new life is given to us. We are dead to the law, but we are now alive in Jesus Christ. Our former husband was sin, and it controlled us. It bound us to it. But now Jesus Christ has come, and he gives us freedom, freedom to live in righteousness, freedom to live for the glory of God. God's Spirit at work in us to bear the fruit of righteousness so that our life has purpose and meaning. We are fulfilled in Christ. Why has he done this? Well, let's look at the end of verse 6. So that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. There was a time when you hated following the letter of the law. Go to church. Pay a tithe. You need to get baptized. Memorize Bible verses. Read your Bible every day. Pray without ceasing. Be holy as God is holy. And those laws were a burden to you. They were a burden because you knew you couldn't do it. You felt that you had to follow them, but you didn't have the power to do so. Well, Christ wants to free us from the bondage of sin and the law. And he wants to give us a new life so that those things that once were a burden now become a delight. He wants to free you by giving you a new heart, a heart that's imprinted with the new law of God that makes you desire to love God, to love his word, to love his people, to love to commune with him. Will you today come to Jesus Christ? Will you let him deliver you from the bondage of the law, the written code, as Paul calls it here in verse 6? Place in your heart a heart that beats with God's passion and not with the passions of the flesh. Do you see now why the best news for Christians are the words, till death do us part? Death to the burdens of the law. Death to the sinful passions of the flesh. So that the life of Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit can cause us to love the law of the spirit of life. And so I ask you, why would anyone seek to be right with God through following the law? 
If I keep these commandments, if I do these things, then maybe God will love me. Wouldn't you rather know that because of the life that Jesus has given to you, that God has already loved you, that he has already adopted you into his family, that he has already given you a new name, a new life, a new heart. And yes, it may be a a heart of an infant, of a child that needs to, to grow and mature, but still a heart that begins to beat with the passions of God. Would you turn your life over to him today? Ask Jesus Christ to take away that sin nature, to bury it so that you might be raised up into newness of life. If you're a Christian, Jesus Christ has put to death the power of the law for the glory of God that you might bear fruit into righteousness. As Paul says to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 3, why then are you still acting as if you were controlled by the flesh? Let the love of Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit flow in you so that you begin to love the things that God loves. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we bow before you and we know, Lord God, that you in all of your glory have purposed before the foundations of the world were even set in place that Christ would die for us so that we could be raised in newness of life. Too often we are like little children even though we have the life of of God living in us, we still have not yet matured. We have still not yet grown up. We've still not yet fully understood what it means to be in love with you. Sometimes we still are afraid of you. We still fear you as if you are a, a, a mean individual who loves to beat up on people. And we haven't seen you as Father, a loving, compassionate Father who lavishes your love on us and your life in us. Forgive us for those times, Father. And for those today who are not believers yet, and they're still thinking that somehow they have a good life and that that they're going to try and keep your law. Oh God, I pray that you would show them just how burdensome that law is so that they would stop relying upon themselves. They would throw themselves upon the cross of Jesus Christ and cry out, what wretched man that I am who will save me from this life of death. And hear those words, thank be to God, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Bring life to them today by faith. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.